22 years ago, I was single and living in Miami. But I was dating, I was dating a young lady all the way out on the west coast of California. And she said to me, when we went from dating to courting, you older folks know what I'm talking about. It got serious. We stepped it up and we were courting each other. But she said to me on the phone one night, I don't know if I can move there because you guys have tornadoes and hurricanes. And I said, well, you guys have earthquakes, mudslides, fires, and OJ. A year and a half after we met, I married her and moved her to Miami. Now back up a little bit. The number one song on the radio in the height of when we were dating was a song by Tupac featuring Dr. Dre on the album All Eyes on Me. It was a song called California Love. Anybody remember that one? It went like this. Every time I got in my car, you know, when I'd hear it around town, I felt that California love. A year and a half later, we married and honeymooned, and the number one song on the radio in February, a month after we married in February of 97, was Will Smith's Welcome to Miami. Remember that convertible ride? Yeah. Benito, I'm Miami, yeah. <laughs> 22 years later, we've lived in both places and of course here, and we have literally been through a hurricane, a tornado, and an earthquake. Have you ever been in a storm, a literal storm, whether you're in the coastal area when a hurricane's coming or you're in the path of Tornado Alley, and it, the wind is whipping and you hear Jim Cantore or somebody on the television, they're telling you to what? To get in the bathtub, to put a mattress over your head, right? And you're just, you're scared to death. It is, uh, it's a, just a powerful, powerful uh, reality, an unbelievable source of power these winds of the storm are when it comes to tornadoes and hurricanes in, in particular. And Luke, Dr. Luke, in writing the book of Acts, in describing the church in its first 30 years, he says that when the Spirit of God came upon the church, the new, the inaugural church, this, the advent of this new movement of Jesus followers, what would become the church, that the Spirit was like a rushing mighty wind. And in a way, if you just read an English Bible, that translation is not really that good. In the Greek, it shows really strong language. It's not some refreshing, cool breeze that splashed along their face and gave them a sentimental religious feeling. It was a rushing, mighty, powerful, torrential wind that propelled them to the ends of the earth. To the ends of their earth at that time in first century Palestine and now to our day. We, as I've said uh, each week, we are a part of Acts 29. It goes from 1 to 28, but we're a part of the continuing movement of this rushing mighty wind of the gospel leaving Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and going to the uttermost parts of the earth right here in Jackson and Fondren where we are today. This movement broke down walls. We've looked at several things. I'll mention three of them in this introduction, but we looked at the gospel and racism, Acts chapter 10. We looked at the gospel and legalism, Acts chapter 15. And today we're going to look in Acts 17 at the gospel and agnosticism. That is just this idea of there is no God or I'm not sure if there's a God. I want you today to turn to Acts chapter 17. Now, if you don't want to turn there, that's okay. We don't judge you too badly. We'll put the scripture up on the screen in a moment and read it together. But before we get to Acts 17, as you're turning or ready to look on the screen in a moment, I want to give you a little bit of background of this. 
Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. Remember, the beginning of Acts was 120 in an upper room. Peter preached the first sermon. Scripture says they were cut to the heart. Uh, some didn't believe. Many did. 3,000 were added to their number. And we see the gospel spreading, increasing, and multiplying throughout the region. And it was persecution. It was martyrdom that caused them to pray earnestly to God and to seek boldness. I've said it most weeks this summer that their prayers were different than our prayers. Their prayers were for God to overcome their enemy and open doors. There were bold prayers. There were missional prayers, not petty, self-serving prayers. And they, they saw God, this rushing mighty wind, do great things. And walls were broken down. And new, new things were brought by the Spirit. It's so interesting to note that we put so much effort on human methodology and creativity and ingenuity. And we look at this great book, the first 30 years of the church, and we see how much of it really was a spiritual endeavor. How many of these leaders, these women and men, didn't know what they were doing. Most of them were uneducated. But God used them greatly. In fact, it says, we're not going to look at it today, but it says that they turned the world upside down. It was subversive and provocative and revolutionary. And it challenged the religious leaders and institutions. And it was a movement, we said, a movement. It was a movement of love. And we see Paul, a guy named Saul. We're introduced to him in Acts chapter 9. We learn about his conversion on the road to Damascus, this dramatic light, but we realize that God had been working on him. He uses this archaic expression, I've been kicking against the goads. The idea that he there was that he's been resisting God for many years, but God was working on him and God had a plan. And we see today, we're going to see today, that God had a plan to use a leader. Sometimes pastors like me, we stand up and say, well, God just uses the uneducated and the ordinary and the earthy and those who weren't the class favorite or the class clown or the valedictorian or the quarterback or the major big time person on campus. But we see where God says, I'm going to take this guy, Saul, who is so educated, who is so brilliant, and I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him with the intelligentsia of the day. I'm going to take his past and reform it in his mind and transform it and use him in the intellectual centers and capitals of the world. Paul was converted And so here he is preaching the gospel and planting churches, specifically at this part of Scripture. He's in Thessalonica and Berea. Preaching the gospel, planting churches, but not everyone was thrilled with his work. He was threatened by an angry mob. Don't you hate it when that happens? Like you're doing good, you're sharing Christ. Here comes an angry mob, and they they run you out of town. Like, my feelings are hurt if you leave our church or don't come for a while, right? I'm all sensitive about that. But I've never had an angry mob come after me. Maybe I'm doing this the wrong way, huh? But here's Paul, an angry mob chases him out of Thessalonica and Berea, but he doesn't pout. The work of God in his life is not over. He heads to Athens. And in Athens, he's waiting on Silas and Timothy, fellow pastors and church planters. They're bros in Christ. And as he's waiting on them in Acts 17, he's walking around here in Athens. Athens is the intellectual capital of the day. Think Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford. Oxford in England, not Oxford in Mississippi. And it's, it's the center of arts and athletics. It's the original home of the Olympics, many of you know. It's a city full of idols. You can go today, as some of you have, uh, Daniel and Carly, 
our student pastor, his wife, they married a couple of years ago, began work at our church. Before they started work at Fonner, they didn't do it on our dime, but they went to Greece to, to honeymoon and went to the city of Athens. And they were at the very site, I've been, maybe some of you have, the very site where Paul reasons and persuades these, these leaders. So Paul's in Athens, the intellectual capital, the center of arts and athleticism, the home of the, of the original Olympics, the city that's full of idols. And he's at this place that translated to us is Mars Hill. Some of you may know there's been a couple of pastors who've become famous. They planted famous churches in America called Mars Hill. And the idea is a good one. How can we share this message in a compelling, winsome way with our world? And that's what happened here. Paul at the Aragapa on the Acropolis called Mars Hill and he meets up with some folks. And Scripture tells us in Acts 17, again, we're going to get there, just giving you some background, but we're introduced to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And these were two major Greek ideas prevalent in the world at that time. The Epicureans, both were, both were conceived, Epicureans and Stoics, conceived largely by Aristotle and Plato. And the Epicureans followed the ideas of Aristotle, that life was really, it was a, Reality existed in the material realm only. That life was about atoms. Life begins as atoms come together. It ends when atoms break apart. Life itself is random, orderless, chaotic collision of atoms. So humans exert free will to, in order to shape the world to suit their own interest. It, at its Furthest tilt, it's the edge of its extreme. It led to uh, something called hedonism, which is the idea, the philosophical idea of let's move away from suffering and let's embrace pleasure. In fact, that's what life is about. We only have this life. Uh, make your bucket list because that's, that's all we have, this life. We're atoms. We're done. When these atoms break apart, life is over. That's it. So you had the Epicureans following Aristotle. Life was about atoms and just the natural, spiritual, uh, natural, sorry, physical and material world. And then you had the Stoics who largely followed uh, a Greek thinker named Plato. And, to, and if I summed it up, the, this idea up in one word, it would be logic. Now they did understand that the universe consisted of atoms, but they said there's more to this world than just the material world. There is something, we're uncomfortable necessarily calling it a spiritual, as in super spiritual, as in God, but there's some cosmic, uh, semi-supernatural, logical mind. And the way that we could somehow possibly commune with him is to rid ourselves of pleasure and to get rid of the emotions that distract us and the passions that are so disruptive. It's a, it's a lot about self-denial, self as the name Stoic would suggest. These two philosophies were growing. They were each attracting new followers in Athens, Greece at the time, but none of, neither one was gaining ground on the other. So there we are in Acts 17. That sets us up. And let's read verses 16 to 30-something, and we'll break it down. Paul's in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that this new teaching is, is that you were presenting. May we know what it is, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst there, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We want to hear you again about this so a couple of thoughts Paul they said was a babbler have you ever been called a babbler don't raise your hand it's derogatory but the idea the language there as I studied it this week in the Greek it's the idea is the image of a bird just as a bird would take a seed and chew on it and spit it out with without digesting it so is a babbler someone who just picks an idea up from somebody and just kind of throws it out there they haven't really read the text they haven't learned or inwardly thought about it digested it or meditated on it in any meaningful way they've just taken it and spit it back out uh, it's it's babbling the, paul is referred to by some as a babbler and as a proclaimer of of a foreign Divinity. Now that gets into where Paul really, really does want to go with this. So we see this marketplace where here they are at Mars Hill where you can shop, where you can go and you can exchange goods. You can trade not only goods, but ideas. And here these philosophers, their ideas of Epicureanism and Stoicism and also other ideas, they wanted to entertain new ideas. I want to say that today. That we are, from this text, I want to tell you what's true in every heart. That we are incurably religious people. Everybody. Like a moth to a flame, we, have, we desire an object for our worship. Everybody. And here we see Paul, this educated and brilliant man. I said it when we preached Acts 9. You could put him as one of the most intelligent people in the history of the world. And Paul is engaging with them. And look what he does here. It's just so very interesting, the approach that he takes. But first, let's see what all is different. The Athenian gods, it was different. They had, many of you have studied this in history books, but they had 
multiple gods, Greek gods like Zeus, who was the god of the sky. He was the, uh, deemed to be the father of all gods. There was Apollo, the god of music and light and beauty. There was Athenia, the, the god of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Artemis, the god of money and prosperity. There was Nike, the, the goddess of victory, who was worshipped, of course, by athletes and warriors and later presented to us by Michael Jordan, who taught us to jump higher, run faster, dunk harder, and buy Air Jordans, right? To soar competitively. The god, the, the goddess, rather, of Nike. Do you know God, Nike was a woman? And then there's Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, sexuality, and fertility. And these were the, the pantheon of gods that were worshipped. Gods that they gave deity to, but gods that were limited. Their gods were more like superheroes who had special powers but had kryptonite and other limitations. And they, their gods were small and petty. They could make sacrifices. They could flatter in order to manipulate to suit their purposes. And here's Paul. And Paul doesn't shrink back. I want you to hear this before we go further. But Paul doesn't shrink back. In this narrative, we see Paul saying, let me tell you about a God you can know. The God that is great. The God that is infinite. The God that is wise. And he says, God is our creator. Verse 24. He created this. He cannot be contained. He's the originator. You can't manipulate this God. No one created him. He's the one who created everything or created the creative process that creates other things. He's the originator, the source of life. In him we live and we move and we have our being. He's sovereign. He wants these people to know the living God. Paul couldn't be more different than these Athenian people. Think about this. This It's important to understand before we get further. Paul was a Jew. They were Greek or foreign. Paul was monotheistic. They were polytheistic with statues of gods everywhere in their city. Paul believed in one way, one truth, one life. They constantly entertained new ideas and new gods without really committing to any of them. The differences were so vast. But I want you to note, if you hadn't already by reading this, that Paul chooses an approach that I want to challenge you to think about today. For doors to be opened. For opportunities to be his witnesses. Paul, notice what he does not do. He doesn't condemn or demean. He doesn't stand up on a soapbox. He doesn't start a fight. He doesn't separate himself from them despite the differences. He doesn't say, oh, you pagan philosophers, you heathen Gentiles, I've never seen such levels of ignorance and idolatry. We are so different. You have to change and you have to become like me. Paul didn't do that. And I want you to notice today what he does. Here's what he does. There's three things that I want to point out to you from this text, from this narrative that that he does. Number one, Paul does this. He pointed out what they had in common. Hey, we're all religious people. We have some things in common. Do you believe that about people? If you have someone that works with you or someone next door, someone that doesn't know Christ, someone uh, that's an agnostic that doesn't believe, that's a seeker or a cynic or a skeptic, do you know that you have so much in common with them? 
It's easy to read the Bible and talk of, hear the scripture talk about the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness. And it's easy to think that we don't have anything like people, or we're not anything like people around us. And we've worked hard to, in some ways to earn that reputation. I have a friend who says that he tells the church, just because we believe in heaven and hell and angels and demons doesn't mean that we're from Mars. And so Paul, in his brilliance, steps up to the Athenians and he says, hey, you know what? We're all religious people. That's what we have in common. I want to say to you today, no matter where you are in your devotion to Jesus, that we're here together and people all around you in so many ways have very similar values. Do you know that I've never met a parent who wants to raise a disobedient, dishonest kid? Now, some of us are doing that, but I've never met anybody that wants to do that. Now, we can disagree on what obedience is and maybe even what honesty is, and we certainly can disagree on the path of raising those kids. But I've never met anybody that wants to raise a dishonest or disobedient kid. We have many, many similar values. If you have a cynic or a skeptic or a seeker, especially a seeker, find common ground with them. Don't be weird and act like you're from another planet. You do believe some lofty things that the scripture teaches, but find common ground. You have, you have similar values. And you know what else we have? Not just similar values. We have the, we have the same needs. How many of you would like a, a hefty Christmas bonus this year? Or how many of you would like to maybe lose weight, shed a few pounds, and get in shape? Right? We all have some of the same concerns and some of the same needs. We're not that different. And Paul starts off with an agreement by pointing out what we, what we have in common. The second thing that he does, he demonstrated knowledge of their world. There was sort of a reason that I shared Tupac and Dr. Dre and Will Smith for, with you this morning. Here, we see Paul, he's aware of their poets, he, when he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being, he's quoting from a Stoic philosopher, a poet, and he's connecting with them. He demonstrated knowledge of their world. One of the great passages of the New Testament is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth, I am all things to all people. Now that, that makes you a little nervous, doesn't it? If you're a parent and you have a teenager, when they leave the house, you don't say, hey, go out there and be all things to all people. Right? I mean, I tell my kids, be who you are, not who somebody else wants you to be. Right? But Paul's not talking about a message. He's not talking about a core of character. He's talking about the methods and how that message is communicated. And he says, I'm Stretch Armstrong when it comes to the methods. The message doesn't change. I said to you last week, the beauty of the early church is that we see in Acts in the first 30 years is that they were filled with the Spirit. And they were convinced of the resurrection. They, they got in arguments they couldn't win. They took questions they couldn't answer. But they always fell back into the resurrection. Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. And he pulled it off. Nobody has ever done that. Ever. And that's what they pointed to. And Paul's message never changes. But his methods do. I am all things to all people. I'll be this way to the Jews. I'll be this way when I'm in Rome. I'll be this way in Thessalonica and Berea. I'll be this way in Athens when the angry mob comes after me. I'll be all things to all people. Notice what Paul did, does here. He doesn't throw a Bible verse from the Old Testament. That would have worked great with the Jewish people, right? It did work great. That's what Peter did in the first sermon. That's what Paul did multiple times. That, that's who he was. That's his people. He could, have, he could have seen the idols. Listen, church, he could have seen the idols 
in Athens, and he could have dropped Exodus 20. No statues are great. Boom, Bible verse, out, mic drop. So Thursday night at Fondren after five, when it was a sweltering 100 degrees, I drive by and I see the angry religious proselytes yelling at some of our folks, maybe at some of you. And I thought, you know, I'd like to pull my truck over and, well, talk to them. But you know, I'm working hard to understand their heart. I think they got half of it right. I think they got there's a God and there is justice. But I I see them yelling at us here in Fondren with their signs. And I just see, you know, they're just so concerned to proclaim They have no concern to persuade. Look at Acts 18.4 real quick. If we could throw that up and then we'll go back to this three-point outline. He, Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. It wasn't just proclaim. It wasn't just throw a verse out. It wasn't like, I've got the truth. You need the truth. Let me just drop it with a mic drop and be out of there. He could have thrown a verse down, but he wanted to persuade them. So let me ask you. What's the best way to persuade people? What's the best way to be his witnesses today? Look, God is a God of justice. I've talked about that. I preached recently that just the the wrath of God. You can't fully understand love unless you have wrath and understand wrath. And that is God. He's not a manageable deity. But there's more than just proclaiming. There's this idea of I want to persuade. And so if you want to persuade... You point out areas where you agree, and then you demonstrate knowledge of the other person's world. There is a whole generation of young people. Listen, there's a whole new generation of young people, and their heart's cry is this. Before you try to change my world, will you attempt to understand my world? And here we see Paul going in and quoting from their poets. Not dropping a verse. You can do that with the religious people, with the religious Jews. But he quotes from their poets. Understand me before you try to change me. I want to enter into sort of controversial waters. I don't want to stir the pot for stirring the pot's purposes. But I think this is a valid point pertinent to the text. But some of us, we really lost it back last summer when a movement got energy. A movement called Black Lives Matter. And a lot of us took to social media and we made a response like blue lives matter or all lives matter. And I'm not saying blue lives don't matter. And I'm not, I talk often about our law enforcement officials and how we need to love them and pray for them. I personally love JPD. I've seen him in action. I love our law enforcement. Blue lives matter, all lives matter. That's not my point. But there was a whole group of people, especially young people, who didn't seem to have a voice and they wanted to be heard and they wanted to be understood. And it's different. I know I'm asking some of you to get out of your political box for a second. But before you want to change someone's world, let us attempt to understand somebody's world. And there's a whole lot of people around us. We don't really understand their world. And it's what I love about this narrative of Paul getting in and understanding their world. He connected them. We're not that different. You're religious. You know, you're religious and I'm religious. We're not that different. That moth to a flame, you got it, I got it. Ecclesiastes 3.11, hey, God has set eternity in every heart. He understood their world. 
before trying to change it. Third point, I think we can go back to it. Not only did he point out what they had in common and not only did he demonstrate knowledge of their world, he suggested that not much persuasion is necessary. He didn't go to every idol and point out the error of every single idol that he saw. He just pointed to one that had a blank at the bottom. And he just sort of hinted to them. He did more than hint to them, but they could actually fill in the inscription. They could move from an unknown God to a God that they, that they could know. A God that they could know. Let me go back a second to this quote from uh, Evelyn Underhill, if we can find that. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. There's a known God. I want to tell you about this known God. But there's so much about this known God that I don't understand. I don't know much about Evelyn, but I read that quote this week and I said, Spot on. Right there. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. You and I aren't going to understand everything about God. But we can know him. We can. Consider this. There's, there's a few things here that I think are valuable for us in light of this text. We see that Paul was, it says, provoked by idolatry. Now some of you get provoked by this world and it stirs up anger. And that anger leads to division and rancor and screaming and brokenness and superiority and us versus them. Scripture tells us in Acts 17 that Paul was provoked by idolatry. Something within him rose up. But it, it says that it does, it, it, the Scripture doesn't say that he was intimidated by idolatry or seduced by idolatry. What that means for me is, I just want to tell with you, share with you my journey. What that means to me is that I can relax. I can relax in who God is and the work that He's doing in my life. And I've had the opportunity uh, at my age and my profession, I mean, this is all I've ever done right out of college, is be a minister of the gospel. And in academic settings, I'd have the opportunity to debate and to sit on panels and go against some, some great thinkers and to talk about Jesus in a multicultural, religiously plural world. And I love the resurrection of Jesus. I go back to it all the time because of its historical reliability. Because it happened and it's true and it's so compelling. That doesn't mean I can debate people about every idea of Scripture and God because there's so much that I don't understand. But what I'm learning to do is to dialogue with people, to understand their world. Like Paul here, I do get provoked because when I see people and I see the idol that they've constructed, now it's not like it is in other parts of the world today or like it was in Athens at the time, statues of gold and such. There are some dominant religions that practice that today, but not us, not, not people who follow Jesus. But there's idols in every heart. And there are some, their idols are preventing them from coming to know Jesus. Is it you today? So as I have opportunity in love, I don't want to start an argument. I don't want to stand on a soapbox. I don't want to condemn or demean because John 3.17 is true. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. To love the world. 
And that's the message that I want to give. And I want to eliminate any objectives from other things that would get in the way of that message of God's great love. But as I, as I share with people, I find myself asking people at times, is this idol in your heart, this God of yours, is it working for you? The, the people that you admire, and by the way, we have idols in America called celebrities. Right? We had a show called American Idol, right? It's the voice now, but we have shows and we worship our celebrities. We want to follow them and follow all the fascinating things that they do on a regular basis. But are those people and the gods they serve, if they're our gods, where does it lead them? Evolution and this idea that science can explain everything. I mean, you're still left with the question, why something rather than nothing? Where does it, where does it lead? A few years ago, I wrote this in a journal, and I want to close with this. This is just personal, a little bit of my journey. And when given the opportunity, I've been able to share this with people who are seeking, and yes, even some skeptics. I wrote this a few years ago, and in the end, I cannot prove to you that there is a God. I look at the beauty of creation, the vastness of space, the amazing genetic software that makes us what we are, and I see the evidence of a creative, magnificent God. Others look at this and believe it sprang forth out of nothing on its own and marvel at a self-made universe. We look at the same evidence and draw different conclusions. I've seen those through the years who claim to have experienced God's Spirit guiding them, speaking to them, comforting, nudging, learning, forming, shaping them. Their family and friends often witness that their faith has made them more authentically human, more loving, patient, compassionate, and kind. I believe in God in part because I am. Because I think and feel and reason and love and perceive. I believe that my very existence and yours points to something greater than we are. But beyond the simple and wonderful fact of existence, there are other things that lead me to believe. God is greater than the universe. He's nearer than the air that we breathe. I believe because of the thousands of moments in prayer where I've sought Him. Scripture reading, reflection, I have felt something, someone offering comfort, assurance, guidance, and grace. Something within me needs to trust, to give thanks, to praise, to worship one greater than myself. I felt connected to God when I'd taken a long walk and I paused to give thanks. I feel deep peace in the midst of storms when I've turned to God in prayer. I feel mostly alive when I'm doing the things that Jesus described as God's will. When singing and praying and listening and worship and inevitably hearing Him speak to me. An atheist has explanations for these. Chemicals washing across my brain, the God gene that causes me to have spiritual or mystical experiences, simply wishful thinking. But my story is this. Too many coincidences. It's more than chance. Tons of times I've done the things I've felt nudged to do. Ha. I find myself in the place where I was needed or needed to be. In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. Would you pray with me today?